Narnia, where horses talk and hermits like company, where evil men turn into donkeys, where boys go into battle, and where the adventure begins. Hello, and welcome to Chronically Narnia. Today is a special episode. It is our wrap-up episode of The Horse and His Boy. Um, whole chapter, review, thoughts, summary, and a special guest. <gasps> Crazy. Don't tell anybody. I'll try not to. But it might be a surprise. Who would I tell? I'm not seeing any of my friends. Anyway. So today we're going to be discussing The Horse and His Boy, the entire book. I am a lapsed bear also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host. I am Shasta's complete lack of a proper upbringing. <laughs> and today we have, also known as, sorry? Chris. Chris. Chris, would you like to introduce our super secret special surprise? Uh, yes. Sure. We are welcoming back a friend of the podcast. I am a 900-year-old space frog, here to talk about Star Wars on the Star Wars podcast, <laughs> Knights of the New Republic, where we talk about Star Wars all the time. What? Fantastic. This isn't a Star Wars podcast? No, I thought, Only this, sometimes. I thought this was a House oh. of Leaves podcast. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, I am the Tisrock. may I live forever. Uh, yeah, had to reserve that one for you. Also known as... Steve. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a minute. Uh, those of you who've been listening for entirely too long might remember Steve from the first ever wrap-up episode we did. For the Magician's yep, Nephew. Way back when. That was, uh, how long ago was that, Kristen? Like eight months? Uh, ish. Am mm-hmm. I the first returning guest? You, you are, are the, the first, first returning, returning guest. guest. You are also our one-year anniversary guest. This wow. is our one-year anniversary yeah. episode. I feel 50th honored. episode. Oh, it's a special one. I don't want to hug all the guest hosts, but I feel honored. I would like to come back. I would re- would like to reserve uh, Last Battle for a prolonged theological discussion with Chris. All right. Okay. You two can plan that. We'll do our best. We, uh, <laughs> we, we can do two. A- we can do however many episodes we want for we that. We'll finish the entire however thing. however many we want. Yeah. We do have a second guest who's going to be coming on for another wrap-up episode of The Horse and His Boy. So don't feel like you're hogging any spaces. We are very successfully making the gaps between having to start reading more children's literature uh, as long as possible. Yeah. All right. So with The Horse and His Boy, I would like to start... By reading the back cover of Chris's book, okay. if you that's thought, okay with everybody. I thought you wanted me to read it. Oh, well, I mean, if you want to read it, you can take it and read it. Okay. But I'll I would like to it. have the back cover of your book read. Okay. And then are we going to do our whole book summary to start off with? I think so. Did, did Steve, did you bring a whole book summary? <laughs> <laughs> did you do uh, your homework today? No, I didn't. <laughs> I have some notes, but I don't actually have a... How many chapters are there? 15? 15. 75 sentence summary? No. No, no, just a five just sentence. Five. Oh, just five. five. <laughs> We're just doing five. No, We're not going to make you sit there forever. I was cleaning out my classroom the other day, and I found a copy of Horse and His Boy, and I thought, ooh, I should take this home and read it. But then time. Surprise. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I've heard time is difficult to come by. You've also read this book like 30 times or so at this point. Probably 50 or 60, actually. Yeah. But that was so. 40 years ago. I'm still your. I'm sure you're much more familiar with it still than we are. Um, so I'll go ahead and read the back cover of this book, which was a spoiler, which I read 
before even starting the book, but... And you didn't pick up on at least one of the spoilers, but... I guess not. Uh, So here we go. Narnia, where horses talk and hermits like company, where evil men turn into donkeys, where boys go into battle, and where the adventure begins. During the golden age of Narnia, when Peter is high king, a boy named Shasta discovers he is not the son of Arshish, the Calamine fisherman, and decides to run far away to the north, to Narnia. When he is mistaken for another runaway, Shasta is led to discover who he really is and even finds his real father. Enter this enchanted world countless times in the Chronicles of Narnia. There are seven books in all. I feel like for a back cover summary, that spoils that's a so lot. much. That's a yeah. lot of spoilers. It really is. Yeah. like Basically it, the whole plot of the book just really summed up there. Yeah. That, that's almost a five-cent summary. We can just use that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's <laughs> why I wanted to read it before we did our summaries to see if we could even hit on the hermit who likes company and evil men being turned into donkeys because I know I didn't include either of those in mine. Yeah, I didn't either. All right. Kristen, uh, before we get into our deep discussion and topics and whatnot, would you like to do a five-cent summary of the entire book? Just sure. in case this is the first episode of this book you're listening to. Sure. Cool. I mean, it's the first episode of this book I'm listening to. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead. The next day, all four of them, two horses and two humans, continued their journey together. They are at peace with us and unprepared, and I shall take Anvard before they bestir themselves. If you run now without a moment's rest, you will still be in time to warn King Loon. Arkenland can never be in much greater danger than it was when Rabidash had crossed the arrow with his 200 horse and you hadn't yet got through with your message. Apparently, King Loon is my father, said Shasta. There you go. It was That was a good summary. I think you covered most of the important parts. Yeah, you know, the, at least all of the characters existed, sort of. Yeah. I will go ahead and grab mine, which is way back here. <laughs> Trying really hard to do that without getting up out of the chair. <laughs> and father is an absolute brick. Uh, yes, he is. Um, so I have my sentence summary. I just spent three months reviewing and talking about every chapter in detail, so I went a little more like abstract with it. Um, Kristen rolls her eyes at me. <laughs> um, but here we go. In those days, far south in Kalerman, on a little creek of the sea... There lived a poor fisherman called Arshish, and with him there lived a boy who called him Father. And when at last the sun rose out of the sea and the great silver-plated dome of the temple flashed back its light, he was almost dazzled. Under the moonlight the sand in every direction and as far as they could see gleamed as if it were smooth water or a great silver tray. Shasta discovered that someone or something was walking beside him. Nay, lad, said King Loon. Thou art my heir. So there's my uh, poetic take on the the imagery and nature of the book. I do appreciate the the dazzling view of the the temple or whatever it was in Tashban. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, all right, let's dive in. Shall we? <laughs> Shall we? Um, so, Steve, you said you had some talking points, and I love. I mean. Our audience has obviously heard us talk about this book for the last three months. So let's go ahead and start with some of the talking points that you wanted to bring up. And I just have flashcards for myself in case we get stuck without topic. Okay. Okay. Well, I just have, I I just wrote a couple of big, I wrote world building. 
Mm-hmm. We could talk about world building. Uh, I, I wrote theme. We could talk about the themes of the story. And then I said, baseless speculation. Under, <laughs> under baseless speculation, I wrote talking horse infiltration program. You know, for kidnapping Calamine yeah. children because we need to get more humans in Narnia, and yes. and then I wrote, uh, I wrote because I, I I was re-listening the podcast and I was listening to the part where you guys were talking about how this book has become about political intrigue, and mm-hmm. that made me think of George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire, and then I looked up how old he is. And he would have been about eight years old when Horse and His Boy came out. And I wonder if he read this and then somehow that planted seeds in his mind. And when he was an adult, basically what we always talk about, either on on, on the podcast or just when we're talking about this, is how much we'd like to rewrite it as modern YA or as a, an adult novel and I'm wondering if that's what he did that that is firmly in the baseless speculation camp I like where you're going with that <laughs> exactly now mm. ostensibly everyone says it's about the wars of the roses and British and English history and you yeah. know the Lannisters of the Lancasters and all that but I think my baseless speculation is that uh, he read a horse and his boy or he reread it as a young man or as an adult and was as dissatisfied as much as he loved it when he was a child, like I did. Uh, he was dissatisfied with it, reading it as an adult, as an adult and decided I can do better than this and rewrote it as, I mean, we even have like, uh, like brothers and sisters who are Kings and Queens, that, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, way darker than Lewis ever was. Uh, and uh, we have, we've, we've talked about Mr. Tumnus being like Littlefinger. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so I yeah. think there's something there. I think, I think that there definitely is something there, especially with the fact that, like, even in our ideas for what to do for a Patreon, Chris has been wanting to rewrite um, at least Game of Thrones, if not the whole Song of Ice and Fire series. No, no I'm, I'm as, not committing the time to that. As children's novels in the in the vein of Narnia. I think it would be easier to turn Narnia into Game of Thrones than it would be to turn <laughs> Song of Ice and Fire into children's. That's the challenge, though. That's the challenge. But we we even wrote down an outline for how we had to do it, like... Uh, I had my I had my requirements where we had to keep all of the main characters intact like we still had to hit on all the actual plot points of the novel. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I you're mean gonna, there's you're not going to execute Peter in like chapter 8 have his head cut <laughs> off. So I know we have like a, a massive listener base now so <laughs> listeners if any of you have a direct line to George R R Martin um <laughs> please email us and we will uh get in touch with him and ask him if this is actually uh these are true facts there's there are actually um on on reddit there is uh at least one post of people asking about any connections where or any known uh connections of george R. R. martin having been inspired by narnia because there's a lot of discussion about this idea of it always being winter but never being christmas and the children of winter and the white witch is like the the night king yeah and the the white walkers Walkers. um like the children of the forest and things like that so 
Yeah, I I don't know. I think it's it's a lot of baseless speculation. Yes, absolutely. But there's a lot of fun things. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I want to paint you a scene. Okay. Picture, go for it. Picture like Horse and His Boy is a movie, right? Like a Marvel mm-hmm. movie where they roll the credits, right? And then there's a little stinger scene at the end. And I want you to picture in the stinger scene at the end, Mr. Tumnus, sort of in dark robes. <laughs> disguised, clearly disguised with like a hooded robe, but you can tell it's Mr. Tumnus because of his little cloven feet clopping on the stone hallway, right? And he goes uh-huh. down and he opens up this door and inside you see this sort of uh, medieval kind of command center with a bunch of people talking and he walks over and seated at the desk uh, of like clearly the person who's in charge of the room is Lazarling. <laughs> And they wow. both look upset because their plans have been foiled. What a twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, putting a bookmark in the baseless speculation uh, <laughs> section of the podcast, uh, there were a couple things I did want to bring up specifically with you, Steve, uh, for those listeners who may not be aware. Uh, Steve has a background in education uh, and is a, I would say you're a bit of a history buff. Mm-hmm. Kind of into Just things. a little bit. Um, and so there's a couple of things that I think you might have a unique uh, amount of input on. And one of them was um, this whole idea of classism in the book. And C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, his own perspective and his aristocratic English upbringing and that influence on uh, kind of how he portrays uh, different stations, as it were. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's something I wanted to kind of get into. Yes. And I forgot about that because that reminds me, I want to put myself in the unenviable position of trying to defend Lewis's statements on slavery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I, I, I heard you guys talk about your comments on his talk about, well, they were specifically s- about Brie, right? Yeah, the, about Brie okay. and about Shasta saying uh, that the passage was something to the effect was if he had had a Tarkin on his back, he would have realized he could have gone further faster. Mm-hmm. But because he didn't have, you know, someone driving him. Okay, history. If you go back <laughs> far enough, all of us are descended from slaves. It's just slavery has this weird, and of course, you know, here's, we're three white people talking about slavery. So this is, you know. (laughs) uh, Walking a thin line here. Yes. But (laughs) slavery in the United States has a really nasty racial aspect to it that it didn't in ancient times. In ancient times, slave, like you just said about classism, that was just the bottom rung, right? You know, the, uh, everybody's favorite slave in Rome were the little German kids because they had blonde hair and fair skin and they all looked like little angels. You know, that's what they said. So it's not so much of a... I think Lewis's... Um, his slavery mindset is more of a biblical, like, Hebrew children in Egypt kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Where it's like... Uh, because he was a theologian, right? And the whole idea was those guys had to wander in the desert for 40 years until that whole generation died out of all the people who had been slaves, except for the, the leadership, right? And um, 
because they had that, oh, you know, this is hard. We want to go back. They just, you know, we took care, they took care of us. And, and his slavery mindset, I think that's where he's coming from. I don't know. I'm explaining I think, myself. Poorly. No, I think, I think that's fair. Like, definitely fair to say that, like, especially with all of the allegory that takes place in the books and is very much representative of theology and a Christian and mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian yeah. setting and all of these different ideas, there is very much this kind of representation where Shasta and Bree and Huin could very much be the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and slavery there. Um, and this you kind of parallel. You said that so much better than I did. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to say. Yes. Okay. They have and spent so, their yeah. lives in captivity. And they are coming out of captivity. But it's an ordeal, which we can talk to when we get to the whole theme of providence and all that. But uh, classism, it's really interesting how there is absolutely, and part of this is Lewis's own issues, which we can talk about. He does not write women well. He does not write girls well. He does not write relationships between men and women or boys and girls well at all Mm -hmm. right the only time you know it's like where is the meat cute there should have been a meat cute and there wasn't because of the classism aravis Mm -hmm. is noble born shasta is a slave you don't get the meat cute until i'm not a big fan of pauline baines's little sketch drawings but the one that i really like in this book is when prince core shows up and you see Prince Kor, for face front in the background, you see Erebus in the foreground, but you see her back in her little Princess Jasmine pajama pants outfit. You can see, yeah. you can see attraction. You can see uh, chemistry. That's the word I'm looking for. You see it. You see the chemistry. You see the surprise on in her posture. Yep. Do you absolutely. See, do you see the look on his face? Okay. That didn't happen. (laughs) That didn't happen until he became a prince. Mm -hmm. And that is terrible, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. I I definitely agree. I think that there's a lot of different um, presentations where we have all of these different moments in the book where Shasta is not aware of how noble people act and yet acts braver than Bree and, you know, all of these things where he is shown to be what they said, the best of us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that was an Erebus quote. And, um, but that's because of his noble blood. Don't you know? Yes. Look at how he he swings into the saddle and 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 you know holds himself in the saddle that's no you know there's the whole that whole sort of genetic and that's a very i i won't call it a very british thing i'll call it a very white thing very caucasian (laughs) thing from the 1950s my mother was born in 1933 Uh, she you know everybody's grandma's a little bit racist you know they don't realize that they are but you talked about your grandma being born in 1920. My grandmother was born in 1906, when uh, you know when the when the Wright brothers first flew. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and even though 
I'm not racist, you know, but, but yeah, you kind of are, you don't realize it because it's like the fish doesn't realize the water that they swim in. You know, <laughs> the fish is not aware of the water because that it's, it surrounds them all the time. Just like a lot of times we're not aware of our privilege because it surrounds us all the time. And uh, I'm going to change. I would love to rewrite this story <laughs> and make Erevis the main character. Yeah. I would love to make her, you know, start with her, start with, I'm going to get married to this old guy. Uh, I don't want to do that. I would, you know, the whole thing and then have her run away and have her fall in with these guys yeah. and tell it from her point of view. I, I feel like you'd have to tweak some things uh, because the Kristen said it really well. We were discussing part of the, the whole classism thing over lunch uh, and Kristen said something like, Ervis never has to deal with being a nobody in the story. Yeah. And even in like the moment where she accepts that she's going to be a, mo- a nobody in Narnia, it's less than a day later that Kor shows up and is like, my father wants you to come live yeah. in the palace with yeah. us. Basically, and you're going to be. Yeah. She's like Robin be... to Batman. She's the yeah. ward of, of King Loon now. Yeah. But then even on top of that, like everything that we talked about with Lasaraline and like all of this kind of tempting of Tashban and all of the things that Erebus was giving up and had to like come face to face with, she still got in the end of the book. Yeah. <laughs> like she yeah. ended up being a queen. She <laughs> ended up being a higher rank than she would have been married to the Grand Vizier. She mm-hmm. got rewarded and higher and more than what she gave up. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. There is no great loss. Yeah. Although like, she was prepared for the loss. She was prepared for the loss, but also we have this kind of, again, this idea of her having this noble blood and this thing coming to her because she's noble. I wanted to also parallel the idea of King Loon telling Shasta, or Kor, that he can't abandon his duty to be king. Mm-hmm. While we also have an example of Erevis abandoning her duty to be married to the Grand Vizier and to be a lady of that court mm-hmm. in Tashban, and how she was still rewarded for that because there is an inherent good side and an inherent bad side to like Kalerman uh, versus Arkenland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she can shirk her responsibility to be of a noble ruling level in one country as long as she is doing it for the good of another country. Specifically, yeah. Narnia and Arkenland. Wow. Because Colorman was founded by outlaws. <laughs> oh, yeah. To the timeline. I s- okay, I don't want to get off if you want to stay on this theme, but I'm sorry, timeline, world building... Okay, I sent you that timeline thing that I found, and you probably had already seen it before. But a thousand years, okay, a thousand years. So in year one, Narnia is founded, King Frank, Queen Helen, and then in year two hundred or something, a uh, bunch yes. of bunch of okay. So King Frank's youngest son, uh, pre- it, King the Prince Cole, the eldest son of King Frank the Fifth. I thought it was his youngest son. Uh, I wrote eldest, but it might have been younger. Okay. Anyway, he goes and founds. So two hundred years later, they found Ar- Arkenland, mm-hmm. and then 
sometime... Yeah, so in 180 Narnia, Arkenland was founded, and in 204 Narnian time... A bunch of uh, bandits run, in, run across <laughs> the desert and start... But then you have this whole... These guys look like the Ottoman Empire, and they look like Middle Eastern or, or you know, Indian or Af- North African. That doesn't happen in... 800 years that happens in like 10,000 years yeah and at this point like from the timeline that we've both looked at we're talking about only 800 years 810 years to be precise from the founding of Kalerman to yeah this this event and then you guys were talking about uh but it was the influence of Tash Chris says (laughs) I really um (laughs) I really want you guys. I'm so okay. So the next one's Prince Caspian, right? Mm-hmm. I love Prince Caspian. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I am definitely on the don't like side. Uh, Silver Chair is great. Mm-hmm. And I like the, the Silver Chair a lot. And then uh, Silver Chair has one of my favorite Earth humans in it, which is Jill. Yes. And The Last Battle uh, also has Jill in it. And The Last Battle, now what was I going to say? Because my brain is fried and I forgot what I was going to say. about. We were the last... talking about the skin color change of the Kellerman and the influence of Tash. Tash about yeah. The Last Battle. Oh yeah, in The Last Battle, spoiler alert, we get to see Tash. Exciting. Just like we've seen Aslan mm-hmm. all of these times. At, we... Tash shows up. While we're on the spoiler train. Yes. For the last battle. Yes. We also get to see an ape. Yes. <laughs> That's why I sent you that text, because I remember from the last battle. Yep. One of the main characters in the last battle is a talking ape. Does he lie a lot? He is one of the main villains, <laughs> in Ooh. point of actual fact. Wow. But, so, uh, right. so this is something we have to look forward to. Yeah, only two more years will be there. <laughs> oh, a year and a half, something like that. Something like that. Uh, but yeah, uh, Kristen, did you want to say anything else about the classism in the book before we moved on entirely from that topic, or do you think we've... I think that it's interesting that Quinn is not really seen um, in a class setting. She is, well, I mean, she's... She is seen more as a servant to Erebus than yeah. she is an equal until much later. No, except when she's first introduced, Bree says something like, oh, that's a full-blood mare or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, but we well also bred. have her very much treated like a, a silent character, a nodding, a very demure woman yeah. who's not going to... Bree's a little you know, bit of a horse racist, though. Okay? <laughs> He's all about the, the blood and the quality and the you know oh yes free the the poor dumb beasts that are here you know we're so much better than them and uh yeah um i remember he also says uh, along that same subject about aslan not being a mere beast yeah Yeah. i remember i have no idea what the name of this movie was because i literally saw it on television when i was a child i just remember that it was in black and white and it had to do with something, some like adventurer in Africa. It was almost like an Indiana Jones kind of movie. And the uh, 
the love interest was this woman who was supposed to be like some Arab or some Bedouin. And you find out at the end of the movie that she isn't, that she is some, the daughter of some French explorer who was found as a baby, like, like Shasta, found as a baby, raised as a, as a, as a Arab, as a Bedouin. And there, and I thought, why does that matter? And I thought, and then later when I thought about this, I thought, oh, because this movie was made in the 1930s. And this was the 1970s when I was watching this, when I was a kid, 40 years later from when this movie was made. But even then I was thinking, why is they making such a big deal about this? I mean, if they're like a couple, what's the problem? And then it, but it was a problem until they realized that she wasn't, that she was in fact white. Mm-hmm. So, Ooh, so it was um, okay. They could, they could love each other. Yes. <laughs> and it's the same thing with uh, Aravis, this whole nobility thing, you know? It's like they're not a couple until he's a noble. Yeah, now, until he outranks her even. Like, yes. she wouldn't marry below her station yes. because yeah. that's where all of her value comes from. It's okay for her to marry up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there is one last line I wanted to touch on. Uh, in this subject, uh, and I can't remember the exact quote. We should have written it down. Yes, you should have. But we talked about it this afternoon, uh, where there is a misunderstanding, and it's talking about how Shasta uh, was assuming that, you know, if Erebus would have abandoned him, but of course, had he known better, and that she was noble, he would know that they don't do that kind of thing. Yeah. And, yeah. like, this is very much and, like... And also his view of the Narnians as well, that they would that they would try to kill him if they found out that he wasn't who they thought he was. And mm-hmm. and just this idea that, you know, if you are of noble birth, you're a good person. Yeah, just... and, I, and I think that's sort of Anglo-centric Lewisness also. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's the whole idea of, of racial superiority, you know, the white man's burden... These guys, these guys can't take care of themselves. We have to take care of them. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to, you know, teach them how to govern themselves. Even though the reality is that they've been governing themselves peacefully for, you know, ten thousand years. But uh, no, but we have to come in and you know sh- put clothes on them and show them how to behave. And yeah, it's kind of messed up. But we also have. Erevis being that kind of protector role of like not gonna abandon Shasta and things like that mm-hmm. but it ends up being Shasta who like makes his plans to go across the desert but then waits and gets stuck there and so he's almost forced outside of his control to wait at the tombs for them mm-hmm. yeah but would he have abandoned them because he has noble blood <laughs> Well, do you want to talk about, like, the themes of this book? Like, clearly, in my mind, the theme of this book is one of uh, providence, which some people refer to, would call uh, predestination. Mm -hmm. It was all meant to be, right? It was, you know, I was the one who, who pushed you in, you know, when you were a baby in the boat, so the fishermen could find you. And I was the one who, I was the lions who roared and put forced you two together and uh, it, it reminded me a little bit uh, have you ever heard the Indiana Jones movie argument like like if Indiana Jones hadn't been in the movie the outcome would have been the same 
Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> the Nazis would have found the Ark. They would have taken it to the island. They would have opened it up. And they all would have been melted. And the Ark would have been lost again for a thousand years. Yeah. There's no so, reason for him to be there. There's no reason for them to be. So, and that made me think, what if, uh, what if they had been forced together by Aslan and decided that they weren't going to travel together. It's like, no, good luck. Hope you get, hope you escape, but we're going off on our own. Yeah. Okay. But what would have happened? I mean, this is, is there free will? Well, I mean, a friend of the podcast, Nathan brought this up, uh, in kind of a half joking way where he said, uh, Narnia is basically just Calvinist heaven. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> At least in this book, to yeah. an extent, yes. Mm-hmm. It does feel very much. And I have a quote about Aslan in The Horse and His Boy. Um, I think it's from chapter 14, as uh, Shasta's being introduced as Kor and telling his story to Erebus. But of course, that was the same boat that Aslan, he seems to be at the back of all the stories, pushed ashore at the right place for Arshish to pick me up. Mm-hmm. And it's that parenthetical in there. He seems to be at the back of all these stories Mm -hmm. that specifically stood out to me as like, as well, and I even made a joke in our last episode, or maybe it was the one before, where it's like, oh, yeah, Aslan needed this kid to get kidnapped, to get, you know, like it was a self-fulfilling prophecy from the centaur that as soon as he made this prophecy, the... The guy was like, oh, no, I need to kidnap this child away because they're going to find out about me. And he gets kidnapped. And that causes him to be able to defend Arkenland in this way that couldn't have happened. And he couldn't have done that if he hadn't met Erebus because Erebus is the one who got the information to begin with. And it's all dominoes falling at that point. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's turtles all the way down. Um, (laughs) Chris said that, I think, three times to me when I would rant about it. Turtles all the way down. Baslan all the way down. Um, mm-hmm. Which reminds me, we need to talk about Narnia being a disc world. But yes. let's... <laughs> well, um... <sighs> but we also, a lot, like, within this kind of idea of predestination and stuff like that, that, I wrote a note about fate, specifically along these kind of same lines of, is everything forced to happen this way? And is mm-hmm. did any of these characters have a choice at all? And there was a line when Erebus hears the criers and and sees that it's Lasarling and mm-hmm. looks up at her. Gotta look. The, the words in the text are, it was fatal. Mm-hmm. And obviously that can be read in two ways. It can be read as deadly or it can be read as determined by fate. And it is it ends up being that it's her meeting Lasarling that allows her to get into the castle, that allows her to get this information from the Tisrock and Rabidash and their secret council and get that information to Shasta, who gets it to King Loon, etc. So it's obviously not a deadly thing that happens. So looking back at that line, it's fatal. It was obviously determined by fate and was forced to happen in this way because of that. Yeah. So, what are moments in this book where characters seem to have a choice or seem to have free will? I think that they definitely <laughs> like slow pause. their progress. <laughs> long pause. Seem? Yeah. 
Um, I think they slow their progress. I think they definitely slow their own progress at the river. Like once they get into the gorge and they start going up along the river and mm-hmm. Quinn is trying to urge them on, but they're not listening. Yeah. And they sleep. Well, my first thought here was uh, when Shasta is staying overnight at the tombs and he has this internal conflict where he's like, oh, this is scary. I should leave, et cetera, et cetera. And right at that moment, Aslan shows up. Mm-hmm basically to keep him there yeah so does and he have so... any choice really <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah okay I, I, ju- I have some more baseless speculation that just popped into my head <laughs> go for it all right let's imagine because because you asked uh at what point did they have any free will well the mm. first the first sort of branch in the multiverse is uh Andredin shows up and says i want to buy your your boy there and so Shasta runs away. What would have happened to Shasta if he hadn't run away? What if he had been sold to Andredin? What would have happened to him? He probably would have ended up in the siege with Bree and Anradin because they rode with Rabidash. Yeah. Like Anradin was in the siege with Rabidash. He was still there. Mm-hmm. Why would Anradin want to buy a white kid? The only one in, in hundreds of miles, probably. Turn him into a spy, maybe? Maybe turn him into a spy. Here, kid, if... we're going to send you to spy school. We're going to teach you to be an assassin. You're going to infiltrate <laughs> nor- the North, and you're going to do our bidding. I mean, we also have at this time... That would be a great time, book now. That would be. <laughs> we also at this time have Rabidash courting the barbarian queen, Susan. And it's it's probably something that is not I I don't want to use the word fetishized, but like has become this kind of like I don't know this this light skinned bride or where the white or, women at yeah yeah like <laughs> <laughs> to quote Blazing Saddles yeah this um. woman that Rabidash is trying to court and trying to win over is very much like in vogue. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, I found a, a white boy that's a slave. I'm going to buy him. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if but I wanna, like your story idea. Better. If you want to get into baseless speculation at the time that the party gets to um, Tashban, how long had the Narnians been in the city? Because they're about to leave. Like they've been there like courting. I and, think like, that I think Edmund says a week having parties. Yeah, and whatnot. I think they said three weeks. So yeah, they've been there for quite a while, and so if you if you want to go into like speculation territory, it's entirely possible that as a Tarkan, and Radden had been in the city and he'd seen the royal party like going to her from the palace, Corin. and he'd seen Corin, and then just happened to be riding by on the way south and sees this white kid who looks a lot like Corin, and is like, hmm, I have an idea. I want this story told from Anne Radden's perspective. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, then we can have the whole Tumnus Lazarlene thing, too. Yes. Yeah. And so maybe he does come up with a plan. Maybe he's like, you know, this is too much of a coincidence. Like, I can probably work something out here. But. And I want to see Lucy. I think Lucy would be in charge of the uh, talking horse infiltration program where they take <laughs> young horses and they say, look, you're going to go down. You're going to get captured. You're going to be a slave in Callerman. And then you're going to find a kid, size up the kid, make sure it's a good kid, 
and then you're going <laughs> to grab that kid and head back to Narnia. Because no, we don't have enough human humans. trafficking, and I can't, I can't deal with. <laughs> we don't have enough humans. I mean, that, that's a very convoluted plot. When they, you know, like they can. Like, but they're brothers. Okay, okay, Martin. But they're brothers and sisters. <laughs> there's only four yeah. of them. Well, I mean, there's there's lots of uh, Arkenlanders. There's lots of Arkenlanders like, too. Yeah. yeah, they're all over the place. And, um, and I don't know if you read that timeline, but I it struck me that this. Uh, Okay, so Lucy's, their ages when they go into the wardrobe are 13, 12, 10, and 8. I did the math. Mm -hmm. So Peter's 13, Susan is 12, Edmund's 10, Lucy's 8. 14 years pass until Mm -hmm. we get to Horse and His Boy. So uh, Susan is 26, which is almost an old maid in medieval (laughs) standards. I mean, it is an old maid in medieval standards, right? She's, ten, you know, you get married. Was also, it was also 1940, her yeah. time when she came into Narnia, so. Yeah, but, you know, there's this, again, you have to, this is the fifth book, right? Mm-hmm. So, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has, to use a movie, movie term, has been in the can for many years, right? And that last chapter, they talk like medieval people. They do. Right. Uh-huh. And but they... also, like, on that timeline, mm. they leave Narnia one year after this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they've forgotten all about Earth by that point. And imagine this, right? Because you're 30-ish. Um, imagine. 30, 31. Yeah. Imagine. Imagine, Kristen, being Susan, 12 years old, right? And then you live 14 years in Narnia. You grow up to be a woman. You stumble back into that wardrobe and you're 12 again. <laughs> no. Or Lucy, no. that's even worse. You're eight. You're eight. Yeah. Like she's lived to be 23. Yeah. And 14, now she's eight 20, years old. She's yeah. eight years old again. You got to go through all that again. Second chance. It's, it's, yeah. No. It's 10, 12 bonus years. I mean, who gets that? Yeah. Well, and I feel like we touched on some of this when we were reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Because in that last chapter, it's like, oh, yeah. And, I mean, I think you even asked, like, did did they have romantic interactions with people as adults? And then suddenly they're in 12-year-old bodies again. And But then they disappeared. That's another great story. Is what happens Mm -hmm. to Narnia after they up and disappear? Well, Tumnus takes Tumnus over, obviously. obviously took well, Tumnus over. has always run the show from behind the scenes. Uh, there would not be an imp- imperial collapse because Tumnus is there. But mm-hmm. Obviously. Just the way, you know, it would be like, you know, if a bunch of world leaders vanished right now. Some of us might not shed a lot of tears about that, but <laughs> it would cause some turmoil. Um, yeah. yeah. So, fate, providence... Free will. Free will. Free will. Mm-hmm. The real question. You know, did the Pevensies have free will? <laughs> okay, now we're getting in a different book. Uh, uh, did Diggory have, and Polly no, there have are a lot of will. there are a lot of agnostic neuroscientists who would say there is no such thing as free will. No, at least not that we're aware of. And there's a lot of believing theologians who would say there's no such thing as free will. I personally. 
choose with my free will not to believe that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't Uh, like the idea of predestination and I don't like the idea. I think you, Kristen mentioned once, I don't want to, I don't want to be in that kind of world where we justify suffering because it's God's will. But Aslan's Jesus, by the way. Yes. Crazy. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was waiting for one of you guys to say it so I could have that reaction. I thought he was the Holy Spirit in this book. (laughs) But, uh... No, that was the hermit. Oh. (laughs) Tomato, tomato, you know. Um, Um, yeah, the... But, but you know, Shasta had to go through that horrible upbringing and the horrible existence that he had. Did he have to do that? Well, apparently, Aslan made that happen. So I guess he did. So yeah, is there? there's this whole, does God allow it? Does God make it happen? Does God, you know, there's this verse that we used to hear all the time that God uses all these terrible things, you know, nothing goes to waste. But mm-hmm. sure seems to me like in this book, he's making it happen. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting theology is presented in the book because like, as far as I've read in anything like actually theological or nonfiction that Lewis has written, he's very much not a Calvinist. He's very much a, in the in the free will camp, mm-hmm. and so it, that it, it's very interesting that he'd present the idea of faith and you know penance and you know, the, like, the will and the of sub, God like, in the way that he does here. Okay. The lashes that Erebus has to take on mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, you have the book there. To whom is this book dedicated? This book. This is where it all comes together. This is the moment Steve's been waiting for. To David and Douglas Gresham. You know who David and Douglas Gresham are? Nope. We're, his, we're terrible and didn't do research. Davis and Douglas Gresham are his stepchildren. They are Joy's children from her first marriage that was abusive and terrible and Mm -hmm. that Lewis, uh, she left her husband and moved to England and she was going to be deported back to the United States and Lewis agreed to marry her. So she was essentially a green card bride with her kids. And Mm -hmm. I think the thing, and then like a couple years later, she dies of cancer. She, mm-hmm. I don't know if when this book was written that she knew she, they knew she had cancer, but it wasn't too long afterwards that she died. And I think it's really interesting that a book whose theme is what it is in terms of God's will would be dedicated to the kids of the woman that he ended up marrying and they had a ostensibly a terrible childhood with an abusive father and then their mother dies yeah yeah getting uh getting dark here okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's why you brought me right yeah well and it's 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 a very interesting thing to like dig into especially because like chris said c.s lewis's theology doesn't seem to reflect it the same way that his fiction does yeah like this kind of viewpoint. I never cared for that. All these things happen for a reason. You know, whenever someone, whenever someone dies or whenever something horrible happens or whenever, you know, a child dies or all, all these things happen for a reason. And you want to punch them in the face when they say that. Uh, 
But isn't kind of what this book? Isn't that kind of the message of this book? As much as I loved this book as a child, and as much as I think it's bad world building now, and you know, I see the flaws in it now, and wish I I would like to rewrite it. Uh, is that the Sorry. thing? All these things happen for a reason. Yeah, uh, and I've I've mentioned that a few times over the course of the past three books, in that. I feel like the theology that Lewis presents publicly uh, in his like treatises and his books is a very different one than he's built into the world of Narnia. And so, you know, if he's doing Narnia as an allegory for Christianity, he's very much of two minds about it. And the Christianity he's presenting to the children in this allegory is not the Christianity that he preaches to adults. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, like if you've read any, I, you, I know you haven't, but I, Steve, have you read the Space Trilogy? You know, I tried. I really tried. I was a teenager at the time, and no, I didn't. I've read the first two books of it, and I've tried and tried and tried to read the third book and never actually um, got further than about two chapters into it. <laughs> <laughs> but I've read the first two chapters of it at least seven times. Mm-hmm. Um but within that, we had, um, like, the main character's name is Ransom. He gets kidnapped away to another planet, which is Mars. Mm-hmm. And on this planet, he ends up essentially being... No, sorry. He finds out about these kind of celestial bodies and authorities and how the, the guardian of Earth is fallen. And how Earth essentially has sin where these other planets don't. And in the second book, he ends up going to a different planet and being the ransom for that planet in order to keep it from so falling ransom, into ransom sin. Ransom is Jesus? Is that what you know? Yeah. Ransom is Aslan well, is Jesus? <laughs> yes. Um, and it's, it's a, it is on its own, it's a different theology, a different take on it as well. And it's a, it's a completely different look as well even like a third view. So I would almost say of three minds about it, having read what I've read. I hope this comes over in the audio. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) You know, and here's the thing. This guy was in a writer's group with J.R. freaking R. Tolkien, right? (laughs) And he couldn't do a better job than this? No. Like, was it mentioned... Let me, let me, all right, so this is the fifth book, right? So Mm -hmm. Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which you haven't read yet because you're reading it in the wrong order, because we have to say that in every episode that you're reading in the wrong order, has, is, is already in the can. It's done. Okay. And so we know that Narnia is a disc world, right? There is an edge to the world and they sail to it. Mm -hmm. And yet they talk about Narnia and the North. And on a disc world, North has... Okay, so they're actually... I know you talk about Lord of the Rings a lot, but let's talk about Discworld, right? Terry Pratchett mm-hmm. yeah. is uh, like 40 books on a disc world. And they talk about the directions on the disc world are hubward and, and edgeward. You're either going mm-hmm. toward the hub, toward the center of the disc, or toward the edge of the disc, right? That's one coordinate. And the mm-hmm. other coordinate is clockwise and counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. Or as they say, clockwise and Wittershins, because that's an old English term for counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And they so don't use that, diesel? 
Hmm? Wittershins and Diesel? Wittershins, yeah. Oh. And, and so that's a disc world. There's no north, right? And again, he's in a writer's group with a bunch of fantasy <laughs> authors. There's no north, Lewis. <laughs> and if you decided that... Like guess, Edmund's battling the giants to the north, even north of Narnia. Peter. Peter is. Peter, he's, yeah. He's, he's trouncing those giants to the north. He's giving mm-hmm. him a good uh, bashing. Uh, yeah, so, okay. That was my I mean, rant. We've established that he's kind of bad at geography in this book, just based on the inconsistencies with the size of the desert. Yeah, cross the desert in a day. That's yeah. not a That's not a it, natural obstacle. I mean, that's... King Loon seems to believe they'll never get an entire army across the whole thing. never... Though. They'll never go half a day, leave a bunch of water, and go back. And then do nope. that, like, four more times. They would never think to do that. No, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. It's also, like, how how long did Bree and um, Shasta travel? Like, they, they spent days traveling before they got to Tashban. Weeks. Before they met Erebus. They yeah, spent weeks. weeks, yeah. Those so were the Chris, best weeks uh, of his life. And, Ra- and Radden wouldn't have uh, yeah. wouldn't have seen the queen at that point. Shoots a hole in that theory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if he was heading to Tashban to go uh, to meet them and to attend the, the possible wedding, and he saw a white kid, he just might want to buy the white kid as like a wedding present. <laughs> Very possible. Yeah. Here, I found this, I found this white kid. He, he's yours. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and you so, see, so if they had done that, if he had stayed and he had been a present to Susan, no, that wouldn't have happened because then Erebus, they would say, yeah, never mind. Okay. Yeah. Scratch that idea for the book. Uh, <laughs> so we covered uh, terrible geography. Kristen, was there something that you wanted to We covered touch dark on themes. Dark themes. And terrible well, like... world building and baseless <laughs> speculation. I don't want to say that the theme of this book is that everything happens for a reason, but I think I think that it is very much intending to convey a theme of like divine providence, like yeah, just divine providence. Mm-hmm. Like there is there is something beyond God is in pulling all things. strings and yeah. In all and things, even when you can't see the cliff edge next to you, you know, yes. and the the stupid footprints poem and all of that, yes. like, <laughs> uh huh. Well, I mean, that's uh, that was my you know trilogy analogy that I came up with uh, a few episodes back, where mm. in the order that we've read them, in at least we've seen you know the you know Aslan as God the Father in the magician's, uh, magician's nephew. nephew and the Redeemer and the Son in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and here as the Spirit and the Provider and the Comforter in mm-hmm. uh, Horse and His Boy. Don't know what we're going to do with the next four books because, you know. And that's but... a compelling reason to read them in this order. That's yeah. not a mm-hmm. bad reason to read them in this order. That's sort of, that'll, that'll play. But um, I'm looking forward to Prince Caspian. It's one of my favorite books because it's a straightforward pretty straightforward adventure story Mm -hmm. yeah i'm excited about an adventure story um i I said over and over again through the course of this book that i feel like at its heart it's a coming of age story uh 
and one of those like you know finding yourself not necessarily adventure but hero's journey coming of age things i was i was about to say hero's journey i think this one is the closest that comes to a a a a actual hero's journey and the whole hero's journey thing was campbell can't remember his first name hero of a thousand faces but he was night he was late 1940s so that's right around this time when that hero's journey which is actually you know thousands of years old but that was the guy joseph campbell that was the guy who who turned it into a uh, a textbook right this mm-hmm. is the way myths are constructed boom 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 that you know because we have to talk about star wars george lucas took and uh you know the matrix and spider-man and all of those are you know the call to adventure mm-hmm. uh, well uh, I, I was just about to get into that and how George Lucas obviously took inspiration from this book to write uh, A New Hope because it's basically the same story. Um, <laughs> so we have the, you know, the desert farm boy who, uh, you know, is, you know, not... Who doesn't actually, know that he, he's actually he, he the twin son of... You know, of royalty. Uh, you know, he got spirited away to this place in the desert as a, as a baby and all he wants to do is escape. Uh, to Narnia in the north, to, to the to, sky. Yeah, to, yeah, to the sky, which is the north. And now he he meets up with this uh, cast of characters and ends up meeting a princess and who has plans and information that they need for the rebellion in the north. Yes, mm-hmm. and in the first movie, wasn't his sister. Yeah. So in that, uh, you know, Bree and Huen are basically Han and Chewie if you think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And he is too short to be a stormtrooper. So it's you're right. Exactly the same story. It fits, Uh, (laughs) but that's the hero's journey for you. And Han doesn't think that he's going to fit in in the rebellion, just like Bree doesn't think he's going to fit in with the Narnian Mm -hmm. horses. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, So let's uh, (laughs) talking about Bree and Huen. Let's. No, you've unlocked it right there. There's nothing else to say. (laughs) We're we're done. Yeah. Brihi, Henny, Brinny. Hoo-ha. Hoo- hoo-ee-ha. Hoo-ee-ha. There's a Y in there. There's one more Y in there. Brihi, Henny, Brinny, Hoo-ee-ha. Yes. And then just Hwen, um, whose full name we never get. Yes, Hwen, we never get the full name of. That was something I was going to bring up. Um, the, the Wikipedia article about Brie describes him as a braggart and vain, <laughs> which made me kind of chuckle. Yeah, it's fairly accurate, though. It made mm. me laugh harder when he's describing him as Han. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I do want to talk about, like, the diminishment of Brie as a character. Like, when is her own thing? But but Brie, on my book, a good 33%, if not 40% of the cover mm-hmm. uh, is Brie. One of the titular characters uh, takes first priority, the horse and his boy. Yeah. Uh, who, you know, looking at that, you're just like, all right, Horse is a main character in this book. Yeah, it's a little bit and of false he, advertising there. He isn't kind it? of is. And and then he just, like, falls away and falls away and falls away. And in the last chapter, he's a footnote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'm thinking, and, like, this is just my perspective as a failed writer, um, <laughs> is reading through this, is that starting out, Lewis really, really wanted to have Bree as a main character. And, like, he was going to have a bigger role in the story. And further into the manuscript, he was just like, 
okay, fine, There's it would be awkward to fit him in here, and this is the place I can really write him out because this scene with Brie isn't necessary, and he just became less of a character because Lewis is just like, I'm running out of space and I want to finish Cora's story. Yeah. And that was my perspective, but I don't know. I, I do think it is a shame that uh, we don't get to see more of Bree's journey as one of the titular characters, and I think we don't and Kristen's whole rant and complaining about the last chapter and that we don't get to see, you know, a resolution for him. We don't get to see, you know, him fitting in with the Narnian horses or, you know, realizing that he's being silly about rolling in the hay. Or yeah, well, you never like find that. out about that. Do, do Narnian horses roll? Yeah, we never know. And I, we have this, you know, it, it's kind of left uh, left hanging with, you know, Bree worrying this entire book and he's talking up Narnia, then he's in this place where he's like, I don't know if I should go. And then we never know how that resolves. You know, like those, eventually. You know those bracelets, WWJD? <laughs> what are this you? Is, this is the last page of my book, yes, and that Narnian. is my angry note yes. that says, Do Narnian horses roll? <laughs> you should make little bracelets that say uh, yeah, DNHR. Do Narnian. <laughs> we could do that. That would be, um, that could that be your could Patreon. be our first merch. That's a Patreon mm-hmm. thing. That's a, you know. That's a stretch goal. You get there a you, you get a free bracelet that says DNHR. Hmm. Uh, I mean, do we think this is because you know Bree as a horse is not necessarily a relatable character? Yeah. Like, I think that um, Lewis is like I, one of you mentioned in one of the podcasts that I've re-listened to over the last two days is that uh, you always have to have at least two children as the protagonists and this is the first book where those two children haven't been from earth but mm-hmm. they're still two children and so i think that just the title is just a play on words because it would be a boy and his horse right mm-hmm. on earth it would be a, a boy and his horse but in narnia it's a horse and his boy mm-hmm. and and that line was you might as well say you know this i this is my escape as much as it is him you know he's he's the slave kid he's the property i stole him Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. absolutely. I think I think that the that line stood out to me as like the title line yeah. that I I you might just as well say I stole him. Yeah, I'm which not is his Bree horse. talking He's to Erebus. Boy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I was just waiting the entire book for that you know dramatic reveal of Bree's origins to be you know revealed and he's actually something special in Narnia and well, there's a reason that he's talking horse. He's the he's the son of the centaur that prophesied yeah. about Kor, yeah. something. Yeah, I don't know. Um, also, on the theme of unanswered questions that I have and unresolved plot threads, the fact that we never mention anything about who Kor's mother is, it's like she oh, yeah. is completely See, unimportant. This would make a great Disney film because there are no intact <laughs> families. Yeah. And we never know. It's like, uh, it's like, um, oh no, I guess we do know how uh, in Finding Nemo, we do see the mom in the beginning and then she gets eaten by a barracuda or something like that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, we don't have any mom. There are no moms. The closest yeah. mom we have is Wynn. Yeah, Arvis doesn't uh, have a mom. Yeah, she doesn't have one either. Shasta doesn't have a mom. Corin mm-hmm. doesn't have a mom. The Pevensies don't, mom is back in England. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. There are no moms. Yeah. 
Diggory's and, and, mom is on her deathbed until like the yeah. last chapter. Yeah. And 26 year old Susan probably would have gotten married to a, to a noble when she was 18 and probably should have had a couple of kids by now. Mm hmm. She was too picky though. Yeah. No. She wanted freedom of choice. This is like, is Susan the, is Susan the allegory for what happens when you're given freedom? I so like want it. to talk to you about Susan. And I, <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about, uh, Kristen? Yeah. yeah. Um, don't read this yet. But there is a Neil Gaiman essay called The Problem with Susan. <laughs> and it okay. has to do with the book The Last Battle. P don't, please don't read the essay yet. But I want to talk about it when you, when you get to that in two and a half years. Okay. Because, there was, yeah, it, Kristen in broad strokes. Uh, no, there's a, I don't know, but there was a letter. <laughs> there was a letter written by a fan to C.S. Lewis that said, "Could you please write a book, Susan of Narnia, and 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 bring Susan, yeah, back bring essentially, Susan back. yeah, and justice for Susan, Susan, <laughs> justice for Susan. That's your second piece of merch. Is a yeah. is a badge that's a button that says." Hashtag justice for Susan. There we go. Oh, we're just, we're just flying out with all these ideas. We'll make millions. <laughs> but um, his response to that was, I can only write stories as they come to me. <laughs> like, if I don't have an idea for a story, if it hasn't come to me, then I'm not going to write it. So I'm not going to go put in the effort to write a story about Susan. See, if we didn't live in the United States, where we have jacked up copyright laws for instance <laughs> that that horse and his boy that i found that i re-edited in first person and in media mm -hmm. res i got from gutenberg canada because horse and his boy is in the public domain in canada yeah okay. yeah because lewis has been dead for a long time yeah for a minute yeah mm -hmm. yeah i'm uh, surprised disney doesn't own the franchise yet i'm really does does disney own harper collins it wouldn't surprise me if they did we could uh, take a research break to check into this really quick. <sighs> List of things that Disney owns. No. <laughs> List of well, things Disney made, doesn't own. Who made the Narnia movies? <sighs> There's been two of them? I think they got to In three. February 2009, it was announced that 20th Century Fox would replace Disney for future installments of the movies. Okay. Uh, though in March 2019, Disney acquired 20th Century Fox, which means they now own the rights to all three movies in the Narnia film series, yeah. with the third still being issued through the 20th Century studio label. So Disney owns the rights to the three films. To the three films. But whether they own the rights to this copyright, whoever owns HarperCollins, that's another issue. Because HarperCollins... Netflix Collins... has acquired the rights, though. Interesting. I wonder what they're going to do with it. Uh, so, Kristen, is there, uh, as far as other themes or anything goes, is there anything we want to dive into before we... I know you wanted to talk about education uh, and Lewis as an educator dismissing any joy in learning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to talk about D&D uh, &D alignments. <laughs> I sent so you this text a long time ago. Uh, and we were talking, you guys were talking about Narnia and Cowerman, right? And mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Tisrock and the Vizier were describing Narnia as undisciplined and unprofitable. 
and they were almost sounding like Ferengis, right, with their rules of acquisition. And uh, and that made me think: is is Kellerman lawful evil and Narnia chaotic good? And the thing that reminded me of that was you mentioning education, and because one of the first things that the four royals did when they took mm -hmm. over was they closed the schools and they liberated the children and the dwarves from having to go to school. Yeah. Paradise uh, for an eight-year-old. Yeah. No school. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, they so, didn't do so in Arkenland, obviously. Yeah, and then Corin, no, not Corin, Shasta slash Kor, says, mm. oh my God, I'm a prince now and I have to get educated and I have to learn things and it's going to be horrible. And this yeah. is coming from a man who's day job is tutor at oxford yes and uh had a long history of education we've talked about it a bit before where c.s lewis was a famous critic of modern education uh and you know how he hated the the you know the rote memorization and like the way schooling was done when he was coming up through it um and he was uh, something we've talked about yeah i've talked about it i don't know if you joined in on that but, but I, was... I, I wouldn't even call that modern education because, I mean, I don't have a lot of firsthand experience about the British educational system, only what I've heard from my wife, mm -hmm. uh, who grew up in the British educational system. But I know that the American educational system is very fragmented. You know, we have local, every, every little school district does their own thing, essentially. And mm -hmm. in England, it's much more unified, like this is the national thing that we do and everybody has to do it. Mm -hmm. I but, feel like there's a quote I'm looking for that I yeah. look up really quick. Hang on. I'm not prepared. But um, yeah, this guy was an Oxford tutor. And so, you know, and, and grumpy old man Diggory, who is, you know, a, a professor, Lewis, a Lewis, who is a professor and who is a Lewis surrogate, right? Set, yeah. Keeps saying over and over again, what are they teaching children these days? Yes. Right? When when Susan is challenging logic with, like, valid and sound logic. Mm -hmm. And she's like, no, like, it would be logical to look at it this way. And he goes, don't they teach you logic in school? Like, if mm. your sister is the more honest one, you have to believe her. Even though what she's saying is crazy and impossible. Yeah. And, there's, <laughs> and there's clearly a forest inside the... the Yes. Wardrobe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, future spoilers that I remember from the distant past. Uh, the two characters who are in uh, Silver Chair yeah. know each other because they are going to a co-educational school together. Yes. Which it's... they go to great pains to describe how much they hate, how horrible it is. And fourth wall breaking Lewis, who is the Deadpool of children's writers, because he's always <laughs> talking to the audience, mm -hmm. talks about how terrible it is. Bec primarily because it's a co-educational school and because uh, they use all these crazy modern ideas. Yeah. Uh, so I have some choice quotes here about Lewis on modern education. Uh, and this is... From an article on C.S. Lewis uh, on education by Guy K. called Carl Franklin. Uh, here we go. Lewis, distingu Lewis distinguished between the old kind of education and the new because the old was kind of propagation. 
men transmitting manhood to men, the new is merely propaganda. They, and here Lewis is referring to what he calls the conditioners, are not men at all. Stepping outside the Tao, they have stepped into the void. They are not men at all, they are artifacts. Man's final conquest has proved to be the abolition of man. Mm. Uh, and then again here... Sexist much? Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> no. We're, we're woo, saving that for our episode with Rachel. <laughs> uh, in an essay called On the Transmission of Christianity, uh, Lewis warns us that the young people today are unchristian because their teachers have been either unwilling or unable to transmit Christianity to them. No generation can bequeath to its successor what it, what I, what it has not got. I might agree with that statement. So, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a terrible thing. Like, Lewis thinks it's a terrible thing, but I might agree with the facts of that statement. Yeah. Uh, and so. I, I mean, I wouldn't agree with the logical conclusion of that statement, which, like, that is saying if you have inadequately had Christianity conveyed to you, then you can't be Christian. No. And mm-hmm. the reverse of that, if you have adequately had Christianity conveyed to you, you can't not be Christian. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, but I do agree with the with the part where he says you can't impart what you don't have. Yeah. Right. Uh, and from what I've read, it seems like uh, Lewis's whole view on modern education is that uh, it's been you know it became something that was more about you know passing tests and facts and learning uh, skills, and that modern teachers weren't teaching their students to be better men and better people. Yeah, and like he was. Yeah. As a professional educator in the year 2020, I would agree with that statement. <laughs> and, and, and I think in terms of, of, like, for instance, Google is now talking about issuing professional certificates. Yeah. Uh, so that you learn how to do something, they'll issue you a certificate that says, this person knows how to do this, right? In, in, in lieu of, say, a, a rather expensive college education, which... Uh, finger quotes isn't you know practical practical or marketable but i would argue probably like lewis would that there is no such thing as wasted education i have a degree in economics i don't use it at all in my life but mm-hmm. i can look at the world through those lens through that lens because of the education that i've had my daughter right. is an artist she's a, got a degree in fine arts and she may never be a professional painter but she has that lens of that education that she can look at the world through and see the world Mm -hmm. as an artist like i could see the world as an economist even though i'm a public school teacher you see the world Mm -hmm. as uh with your english degree you know they're sort of like those little uh maz kanata lenses since we i always have to reference star wars (laughs) that pop down over your eyes that you can see okay i'm using my special perception now Oh yeah, yeah. I often do this when when I when I watch the news, right? And I'm listening to somebody on the news, and I'll I'll use my economist lens, and I'll go bleep, and I go, oh yeah, that's total BS. Bleep. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's no such thing as a wasted education because it changes you. Yeah. No, I agree with that. All right. Well, we solved that one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So you said education. And I think uh, just to go along with what you were saying, Lewis, viewing this kind of idea of imparting manhood from (laughs) one generation to the next, Mm -hmm. that's what's happening with Core and his education that he's being forced to receive in Arkenland, where he's learning how to be a man. man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he has to learn how to be a king. 
Yeah. And there's a great line in there, which I don't think any of you guys mentioned. And it's just lurking in the back of my mind because I haven't read the book recently. But Corin says, yay, I get to be a prince. Princes have all the fun. Yes. And the dad, King Loon, says, your brother is, tr- that statement is truer than you think. Because, That's truer than thy brother knows, Cor. Yeah, but can you keep reading? What does it say? Because a king has to do this. For this is what it means to be a king. To be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. Well, if you're a good king, that's true. You yeah. know, if you're a North Korean king, then everyone around you is rail thin and starving and you're fat and happy. But, um, but yeah, that's... I wouldn't want to be a king if that's the job description, would you? <laughs> no. <laughs> and he can't get out of it. And he can't get out of it because it's mm-hmm. the law. Yeah. And that's yeah. a great Subject line, to too. Law. I wish more people would, would... I wish that was... that You could put some merch on that. The king is under the law because it's the law that makes him king. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Hashtag. It's a really long hashtag. <laughs> and that's uh, awful good right there. <laughs> So Narnia is chaotic good. Arch and Land's lawful good. And Kellerman is chaotic evil. No, lawful I think they're lawful evil. No, they have a under rule of law. They yeah. have a structure, right? Mm-hmm. But it was founded by outlaws. Was founded by outlaws. Under the is Rabidash chaotic? Rabidash and is that could... why he ends up being the peaceful king? Ravidash could be chaotic. He certainly has, you know, the, the impetuosity of youth. There's a lot of raging hormones there. <laughs> Even though he's, you know, in his mid-20s or something. Well, but. he could be 18. Who knows? Yes, but Probably. he's going to have that barbarian queen. His mm-hmm. frontal his frontal cortex is not fully formed by any means. Susan being 26, it, it it's, you know, mm-hmm. she's Locked pretty in. much she's pretty much fully, fully baked her brain. Yeah, it's complete. All right. Uh, so anything we haven't gotten to yet? Well, I, I mean, I have like my challenge to look at every book with uh, re re-envisioning it with the narrator as unreliable. <laughs> and, and where does that bring us with this story, especially with this idea of divine providence throughout the book? But I really liked what Steve said about Lewis being Deadpool. And I think I'm going to change that <laughs> note on this card to say, like, to re-envision the narrator as Deadpool. As Deadpool, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And he and he turns to the camera and he says, and remember, children, don't ever, you know. But he has, it's, uh, it's like sarcastic, you know. <laughs> don't ever close yourself in a wardrobe. Remember, don't ever lock yourself in a wardrobe. <laughs> wink, mm-hmm. wink. Don't poison your mate. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Uh, I think this is the first time in history anybody has drawn a direct comparison between C.S. Lewis and Deadpool. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and don't forget to wipe your sword. I do every night. <laughs> oh, and grease those oats. <laughs> All right, we <laughs> we should get into uh, should get into our review segment if we're done here discussing the book. Had you given me more time, uh, I <laughs> would have. I thought of this, uh-huh. but but I thought of it halfway through my second listening to your podcasts, 
And I still may do it, but now it's kind of moot, except I could do this and text you with the result. But at the end of every chapter, you give it a rating. Yes. And I was going to conv- uh, to average it to see what your rating for the entire book is. Oh, and convert yeah. it to like a 1 to 100 scale. So, you know. What what grade it gets? What, four stars what's its letter grade? Eight, yeah, yeah, four stars would be 80%. We could do that and just... You know, post it on the Twitter. I just have to listen to the last 10 minutes of every episode. I could start having a spreadsheet for each book. Uh-huh. You sound very excited about I that. I like having spreadsheets. <laughs> Is this the asthma part of the podcast that we're getting back to? <laughs> spreadsheets. Spreadsheets. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't want to cut you off, Steve. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we uh, start wrapping this up? No. Um, so, yeah, we'll go ahead and get to this last with segment that we've done. Uh, I believe we've done in two of the previous wrap-up episodes. Uh, but, you know, we've done at least one. Uh, where at the end of every chapter, I go through and, you know, give a rating to the chapter, as Steve just mentioned, uh, basically just on how well it did what it set out to do. And I, I am assuming if I go back through Horse and His Boy, the rating probably isn't good. But we can do that, and we compare it to the rating I'm about to give to the entire book. Uh, Chris and Steve, feel free to join in on this. Uh, but... Here, here are my final thoughts. So far, as a whole, I liked it better than either of the two previous books. Because um, I think it's just, it's a more interesting setting. It has more interesting and more complete characters. I think it has more dynamic characters that we get to see growth in. Uh, as a story... And as a cohesive, like, this story makes sense and doesn't have plot holes type thing, I think it's not quite as good as Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because that can, you know, is very easily diagrammable into, oh, this has a beginning and, you know, character introductions, and this has a clear climax, and, like, this has building action, and this has an epilogue. And I feel like the lines are are more blurred throughout Horse and His Boy overall. Um... But I feel like the ending is satisfactory. I feel like ultimately we don't, don't have... Don't forget the the lack of, like, a, a solid uh, um, antagonist. Yeah. Um, throughout the first two-thirds of the book. Yeah, the fact that the antagonist doesn't show up until very late in the book uh, in any kind of real or meaningful way is a weird choice. Like, and it seems like it kind of shifts, and in the first half of this book you have the antagonist being a culture itself. And just the entire idea of Kallerman. Uh, and then that gets distilled into Prince Rabidash as he is like just the, the purest form of everything that's wrong with this country. Um, I, I could easily fix that for you. <laughs> Do you want a protagonist? Just antagonist? Make, make the first chapter, and this solves your Is Bree a major character problem. Mm-hmm. Um, make the protagonist in the early parts of the book the slave catching party that's out to get Shasta. And Bree uses all of the training and experience that he has had as a warhorse to avoid to that. What is that? Seer evasion, escape. You know, they could even get captured, and Bree acts like a stupid horse again. And then because you know, and and he and he they get away again. It could be great. It could be. There's just lots of ways we could rewrite this. Uh, and that's my problem with all of these books. Uh, but again, hindsight's twenty twenty, and like I hate being the guy who's just like, oh no, C.S. Lewis was a hack fraud. 
because I wasn't there and I wasn't writing these books and you know I'm looking at them through the lens of literature 60 years later so I try to keep that in perspective and how many books have you published exactly <laughs> that's uh yeah it's like a- until I published a wildly successful line of children's books I feel like I don't have anything to say about what Lewis can or can't do all that being said, my my ratings are going to be wildly inconsistent because I don't remember what I rated the first two books, so I don't know how to compare this. But Kristen, what am I rating this out of? I I was going to say prophecies from centaurs, but um, divine interventions, divine interventions, appearances of Aslan. Yeah, you know, let's go with divine... footprints of Aslan. Let's go filled with... with water. That yeah, divine interventions is good. <laughs> we'll go with that one. Um. So overall, I think I'm going to give it my average of what all the chapters have been, which I think is about 3.5. Divine Interventions. A solid C. Solid C. Like, as a children's book, I don't think it's bad. I think it's interesting for what it is. But I'll rate it differently. Feel free. Of the three books that you've read, I would say on a scale, on, on... on best to to least, I would put Horse and His Boy first, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe a close second, and Magician's uh, Magician's Nephew a distant third. And yeah. I think Horse and His Boy, again, because it was my experience, it was my gateway drug into Narnia, that it's right. a really good introduction into that expanded the narnian expanded universe horse and his boy because it's like a bottle episode right we don't have any right human kids right or earth kids the earth kids are grown and they're they're tangential characters this is just a story that right. takes place entirely in this world and so in that way it's a really good introduction into this world yeah and that's why i like it Do you, do you have a rating you want to give it, or are you gonna? Yeah, well, yeah. I'm gonna rate it uh, on a, on on the on the Olympic podium. I'm gonna put <laughs> Horse and His Boy first place. I'm gonna put uh, Magician's Nephew a distant third, and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is in the slightly elevated second position, okay. holding holding their yeah. various medals: gold, there silver, go. bronze. Oh. High praise, uh, Kristen. Do you have something you want to say about it? I am going to just just represent. Just I'm just gonna throw throw this back to Lucy okay, meeting Thomas. Okay, I'm gonna throw this back. Nope, that's it. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and seeing on his shelf a book <laughs> titled yes. "Is Man a Myth?" <laughs> uh huh. Mm-hmm. So clearly, all of the humans abandoned Narnia completely at some point. Or they were murdered by Jadis. Or they were all murdered by Jadis. Mm-hmm. But Arkenland was founded in 180. <laughs> and Arkenland is clearly still around in 1014. So Arkenland successfully existed for 834 years. Right there on top of the mountains, looking down yeah. at the other side from Narnia. Like, it looks cold down there. <laughs> I probably shouldn't go in. <laughs> and Narnia has 
And Jadis has only been back in Narnia since about 860-something. I don't remember from the timeline, but she... No, nine-something. Yeah. It was 100 years. Yeah. 98 years, yeah. So when the Pevensies arrive, even if Jadis killed all of the humans in Narnia, it's been less than 100 years since any humans were in Narnia. And we have already got books about whether or not man is a myth. My only... Um, if, I, if I if I would have to rise to the, to the defense of if I had to play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. um, Jadis ran Narnia like it was North Korea. Uh-huh. It was, com- but she kept the kids in school. <laughs> yeah, but it was completely closed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so Tumnus, who I mean, probably some tree spirits. And some other long-lived creatures knew what it was like before the Endless Winter. Mm-hmm. But Tumnus was probably born in the Endless Winter. Mm-hmm. And so there hadn't been people around. Yeah. Is man a myth? Yeah, it's a stretch. Book, I want to know. It's a stretch. I don't remember. No, we don't. We don't ever find out. I don't remember if it's listed or not. Yeah. But, I mean, either way, it is... It is a moment of, like, obviously, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was written first. It was probably not written with the intention of being the beginning of a series and sparked something further. However, like, the internal inconsistencies within it is just... I don't know that I that's just where I'm going to throw it back to and I'm just Mm going to leave it over there. I'm just going to not unlike the Star Wars saga. (laughs) It's going to leave that book on the shelf. That's your that's your review. Yep. Yep. Going to leave is man a myth on the shelf. Yes. (laughs) I'm not going to pick that one up and and dig further into it. So I'm just going to be content with what's in front of me. I'm not going to dig into these inconsistencies. I'm just going to sit here with this book with you guys but is aslan an actual lion i mean he is a true beast this is what he describes himself as i am a true beast Mm -hmm. is that more in this idea of like i am true existence and you must become more like me to be truly alive or is that more of this kind of like yeah no i'm i'm just a, a lion I don't know. I mean, if you want to get into baseless speculation, like just imagine how, you know, how different Christianity might have been if that one line found its way into the New Testament somewhere. Just like Mark 13, Jesus says, I am a true beast. (laughs) And how that changes everything we know about Christianity today. Yeah. But. He's a beast, man. (laughs) Um. So anyway, that's that's our podcast. Do you want to go ahead and wrap us up, Kristen? We can have some post-episode discussion if we need to. But uh, yeah. um, Well, the next episode is going to be uh, the continuation of this Horse and His Boy wrap-up episode with another guest. Yes. Uh, who is? Rachel. And we look forward to hearing your feminist takes <laughs> from you and Rachel. Is that is that uh, an egregious? She's a woman. Is that an egregious <laughs> assumption, or is that? Nope, that's that is that is all true. That is a very good. Uh... All right, wrap it up. So, <laughs> is there any other uh, closing thoughts, arguments? Uh, well, I started doing the wrap up wanted... by teasing the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
Go ahead and finish that, Kristen. All right. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. Steve, thank you for coming on and joining us today. It's been a pleasure to discuss with you. Um, and if you are interested, audience, in interacting with us further, you can hit us up at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email us your fan art of Shasta and Brie. And no, at of, Tumna, of of the 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 post epilogue Tumnus and Lazarline scene. Yes, the tu- yes the Tumnus and Lazarline <laughs> scene, mm-hmm. overlooking some beautiful sunset with the seagulls. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> and you can email us those. Yeah, you got to talk to my wife about British people in the sea sometime. Mm-hmm. You can email us those at chronicallypodcast at gmail dot com. And um, never taunt a man, save when he is stronger than you. Then as you please. Don't forget to grease those oats. And wipe your sword daily. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. fourth wall breaking Lewis who is the Deadpool of children's writers because he's always <laughs> talking to the audience um and this kind of that's so much better than I did <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to say yes I, I do I did write two quotes well it's on my phone I wrote one quote I remember this was a Chris prayer quote Baseless speculation is what we do best. (laughs) Yup. Aslan's Jesus, by the way. Yes. Crazy. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Let's dive in, shall we? Let's go. Okay, I should probably silence my phone and then we should redo that. Hashtag free Narnian characters. Uh, they're never going to be free. So I will go ahead and. Oh, there are ants. Why did you let ants get onto the couch? I didn't put anything there. I know, but yeah, we you have ants too. There. It's yeah. because it's you so hot and dry. Them? The ants are looking for food and water. That's what I've heard. They're all over the place and uh, not finding any food, but they're still here. And you know, um, there they, is one giant ant colony that exists between San Francisco, San Diego and San Francisco, right? It's yes, one and colony. it's at war with the other super colony yeah. that's in, like, Las Vegas yeah. in Nevada, right? Yeah. Now, there would be some great fiction right there. Yes. Mm-hmm. That'll be your Patreon. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and But I'm also very much convinced that ants are telepathic, okay. so... This is not the podcast where we talk about that either. All right. After we're done, we'll go back to talking about ants because I have more ideas. Okay. Okay.